Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 226, Biblical Words for God and for His Son, Part 3, Post-Biblical Uses of Biblical Words and New Words. In this third and final part of my series of talks on ambiguous theological words, I discuss terms like God, True God, the Father, the Trinity, the names Jesus and Yahweh, and the term Natures. All of these, it turns out, are importantly ambiguous. They can refer to different things, and different theologians use them in different ways. There's a lot of confusion that results from these ambiguities. These problems are not so easily resolved as the ambiguities that I discussed in parts 1 and 2, but I do suggest that there are two ways forward and urge you to pick one of them. So here's my talk given on March 25th, 2018 at Higher Ground Church in White House, Tennessee. So in this series, I've been talking about ambiguous words, words that can mean different things, especially names and titles that can refer to different beings. And in parts one and two, what I was bringing was basically good news. The good news was the terms Lord and God in the Bible are a little bit confusing, but yeah, not, not too much. It's nothing you can't pretty easily figure out. So there are some ambiguities there, but it's not really a barrier to understanding. Now in this third part, it's not good news. It's bad news day <laughs> because there's no easy answer to sorting out some of these things. And I think we just have to face that fact honestly. So if you remember from last time, when you see the word God in the New Testament, it's almost always the Father. And the context usually makes that clear. As I said last time, between zero and seven times, God refers to the Son. It depends how you translate certain passages or how you interpret certain passages. Some people think once or twice God refers to the Spirit, like where Peter tells uh, Ananias or Sapphira that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and then you've lied to God. So, yeah, maybe a couple of times uh, the word God means refers to God's Spirit in the New Testament. Uh, never means the Trinity. That usage isn't a first century usage. Is the word God ambiguous in the New Testament? A little bit, as shown in this chart. But things change radically as Christian history goes on. So, in a later era, the word God is very ambiguous. The famous Athanasian Creed says, that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. All right, well, that's kind of a mind buster. That's how everybody reacts to this. This creed is confessed in some churches, say, uh, Reformed churches, Roman Catholic churches. But just notice this, God is used in four different ways. It's used for the Trinity, it's used for the Father, it's used for the Son, it's used for the Holy Spirit. Now this pie chart here, this is fake statistics, okay? I'd like someone to do real statistics, uh, but it would be different for different times and places. Like if you took all the Southern Baptist sermons preached in 2018 and look at how they use the word God, I think sometimes it would be the Trinity, 
Very often it would be the Father. Sometimes it would be the Son. Using God for the Holy Spirit is very rare. That's why I have it in the the smallest piece of the pie here. It'd probably be different if you looked at Roman Catholic sources or Reformed sources and things like that. But anyway, a term which was practically not ambiguous has become very ambiguous in later usage. And so this is a general trend. Terms which just are a little bit ambiguous in the New Testament become very ambiguous later on. Another one that's really interesting is the phrase true God. And this phrase we see in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, there's a prophet named Azariah prophesying. He says, For a long time Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without the law, right? because they had forgotten those things. But when in their distress they turned to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. Okay, so the true God here is just a description of Yahweh, the one true God, according to the Old Testament. The famous prophet Jeremiah, in his big long book, he uses the phrase, the true God, as well. In the first passage, they're contrasting the true God with the gods of the nations, with the so-called gods. Same thing in this passage from Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah says, The idols of the nations are both stupid and foolish. They are all the product of skilled workers. In other words, you know, some craftsman made this statue. Look, he painted the eyeballs on. Come on. You're going to bow to that. Yeah, people still do it today. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. It's kind of sad. Anyway, he goes on. But Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. Okay, so they're using the phrase the true God as a way to refer to Yahweh and as a way to distinguish him from gods who are merely so-called, like idols or the gods of pagan mythology. The same usage of true God occurs in the New Testament. I find it in three places. Perhaps most famously, John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying, and he's praying for what God will do after Jesus is uh, resurrected and, and ascended to heaven. Jesus is praying for how God will bless the church of Jesus' followers. And he prays, Father, glorify your Son, He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So again, the only true God, it's the Father. Well, that's the one that's called the Lord or Yahweh in the Old Testament. Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, For the people of those regions report how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. So the living and true God is who? Well, it's God, but it's the one who has a son, Jesus, and so it's the Father. So this is the usage of true God in the New Testament. There's one more famous text. This is in the letter 1 John, or some people say 1 John. This passage is actually disputed, although I don't really think it's unclear how to take this. I'll tell you how it's disputed in a second. So John writes, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. Okay, hmm, who is this Him who is true? Well, let's keep reading. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. Okay, so him who is true is the Father. 
as opposed to the Son. That's God. And then it says, He is the true God and eternal life. As I understand this, again, the Father is being referred to as the true God in this passage. Now, the only reason it's confusing is, look right before the last sentence. It says Christ, Jesus Christ, and then He is the true God. And that's a little bit ambiguous because usually when you see a personal pronoun like he or she, it usually goes with the last person you referred to. Well, but this looks like it's just an exception to the rule. He's talking about God, then he mentions his son Jesus Christ, and then looks like the he should go back to talking about the father again. So that's how most interpreters take it. Remember last time I talked about that Trinitarian evangelical scholar, Dr. Murray Harris, who has that book about God terms as applied to Jesus in the New Testament. He reads it the way that I'm reading it here. So it's a little bit controversial, but not really. So in the Old Testament, the one God is the true God. In the New Testament, the one God is the true God. And as Christian history goes on, it gets more complicated. So this is the famous Nicene Creed. This was passed by a council of bishops in the year 325, and then it was reaffirmed in a slightly revised form in 381. And this is confessed in churches that use these types of creeds. So Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Reformed, Anglican, not so much other Protestants and Evangelicals. It depends. Some Protestants prefer to stick more with the Bible only. So it starts off using a traditional confession. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. Hmm, okay, that's interesting. Begotten. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Now, what does this mean? to be begotten before all ages. What does it mean to say God from God, true God from true God? When they came out with this language in 325, they thought about this language and whether or not they should get rid of it for about four or five decades. So it's unclear what it means, but the point I want to make now is just, look, true God is used for the Son, and true God is used for the Father. So a term that wasn't ambiguous in the New Testament now becomes ambiguous. There are two true gods. One is eternally from the other by some kind of mysterious uh, generation process. Now, speaking of the term the Father, this has become a little more complicated between the Bible and later times. So, in the New Testament, the Father is used interchangeably with God. It's just two ways of talking about the same thing. So, for instance, if you talk about the Trumpster and the president, you're just referring to the same guy in a less respectful and a more respectful way. Or Mr. Trump or the Donald. There's lots of ways you can refer to the same guy, right? In the New Testament, the Father is a way of referring to the one God, and and the word God normally is a way of referring to God. And so what the authors will do is they'll just stylistically swap the names because it sounds better than saying the same name over and over. So say you write an article about Donald Trump. You're not going to call him Donald Trump 10 times in the article, right? You'll say Donald Trump, then you'll switch to Mr. Trump, the president, 
etc. Whatever is your favorite pet name for Donald Trump is. You're going to mix it up just because variety sounds better. So look what John does here in John chapter 6. Now this is Jesus talking. It is written in the prophets, they shall be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Now if you took this passage and you just changed every, every red word there to God, it would mean the same thing. And if you changed all of the red words to the Father, it would just mean the same thing. So they're just stylistically switching out these two terms. Instead of saying God, 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 or the Father, the Father, the Father, the Father, they're swapping out God for the Father, and then they go back and forth, and it just it sounds better. We do this, I think, in all languages. I don't know all languages, but anyway, the languages I'm familiar with do this just because it sounds better to put some variety in there. Okay, so Father, in later usage, sometimes people do mean the one God when they say that, but then... After these Trinitarian creeds, particularly in the year 381, the Father is now supposed to be a person within the one God. So it can mean God, or it can mean something within the one God. Some people say a part of the one God, but other people would object to that language. Some people say a third of God. Anyway, the term used to be not ambiguous, just a way of referring to God. Now it's become ambiguous between the one God or a person within God. But Christian traditions, what I'm calling small-c Catholic traditions, traditions used by churches that recognize those early creeds, they don't just give new meanings to biblical terminology. They actually do introduce some new, supposedly improved terminology as well. And so there are terms that you won't find in the Bible, but you will find in later theology. And so let's take a look at those. Now, the New Testament has the phrase God the Father something like 18 times and God our Father about 11 times. And you can find more cases than that where the word God and Father occur close together. So you get the idea that the Father and God are one and the same. In post-biblical theologies, they still talk about God the Father, but they also talk about God the Son and God the Spirit. Okay, well, this is new. You don't see the phrase God the Son in the New Testament. You don't see the phrase God the Spirit in the New Testament. Why do they do that? Basically because of the creeds, um, in particular the Nicene Creed. But wait, there's more. (laughs) But before I get to that more, I'm going to need some help from some superheroes. So think about Batman and Robin. These guys have the nickname the Dynamic Duo. Now, suppose you're an advertising man and you've been hired to work on the Batman and Robin TV show and you're like, okay, so which one of you guys is the dynamic duo? Well, no, sir, you're confused. It's not the pudgy middle-aged guy in the tight suit that's the dynamic duo and it's not the young kid in the really weird outfit with the short sleeves. He's not the dynamic duo. We're both the dynamic duo, right? So dynamic duo is a plural referring term. It doesn't refer to one thing. It refers to two things. Now, just imagine with me for a second. Suppose that the makers of the Batman and Robin comics said, you know, Batman and Robin, that's kind of old fuddy-duddy. It's old-fashioned now. Plus, people think it's a little bit off that you got this full-grown man running around with this boy in this weird costume. How about we get rid of Batman and Robin and we change it to Batman Robin? 
Okay, now it's just one guy, but he's got all the powers of both. Now, if they still called that the dynamic duo, this new Batman Robin, the superhero that doesn't exist yet and hopefully never will, if they made this change, then the dynamic duo, that phrase would go from a plural referring term to a singular referring term. Before, it was a way of referring to two guys, not to any one, but to the two of them together. And then later, now it's, it's referring to one superhero again. Okay, so that could happen. If it did happen, it would be confusing because then when someone said the dynamic duo, what do they mean? Do they mean Batman, comma, and Robin? Or do they mean Batman Robin? Well, you'd have to get someone to clarify you, and no doubt the uh, comic book purist would have something to say about this. They would want to probably stick with the original. All right, what on earth does this have to do with God? Well, I'll tell you. So one new term that comes in in Christian history is Trinity. So heterios in Greek, the earliest known usage of that is from about the year 180 AD. And when it's originally introduced, it's a plural referring term. It's a way of referring to a triad of God, God's Son, and God's Spirit. And so talking about this triad doesn't presuppose that they're one being, doesn't presuppose that they're equal. So that's why I've represented them here as three beings, and the, the Father is the biggest one. Typically, these early Catholic thinkers thought that the Father was greater than the other two. So only the Father is all-knowing, or only the Father is all-powerful, or the Father's divine through himself, and the others are only divine through him. So that was all the early usage of the word trinity, trinitas in Latin, or trios in Greek. If you see that word in the 100s, and the 200s, and the first half of the 300s, it's always a plural referring term. And God is one of the things it refers to. The one God is like the founder of this triad, or the most important member of the triad. All right, but as theology develops and things move on, there's another usage for this word. It means the triune God. So this is the one God in some sense consisting of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, and they're said to share a divine nature or an essence. Now, what's so confusing about this is they didn't stop using the phrase the Trinity in the old sense. They just added this to it. And theologians still do this today. They'll say things like, well, the Trinity's all over the pages of the Bible. Well, if they mean the triad, God, God's Son, God's Spirit, well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of all over the Bible, right? But if they mean the triune God, well, I mean, it's not mentioned as such anywhere. There isn't a term in the Bible, whether it's God or Yahweh or Adonai, there isn't a term that's supposed to refer to the triune God. It just didn't exist in that time. This is what the lexicons will tell you if you consult them. So Trinitarian theologians, they'll say the Trinity, and they just mean the three of them referred to as three, but then they'll use it as referring to one being as well. Right, so you can talk about the triad and about the Trinity. This really is one of the most central confusions, I think, that people have in their mind about all of these subjects. I don't know if you're familiar with this guy. This is Samuel Clark. And he was a friend of the famous scientist Sir Isaac Newton. 
Clark was a brilliant guy, and one of the things that he's most famous for is writing a book called The Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity. And this was a famous Unitarian book. He almost got in huge trouble. He almost lost his job as an Anglican minister because he wrote this book and then defended it later. Okay, but he's using Trinity just to mean the triad. God, that's the Father, the Son of God, and the Spirit of God. There was an earlier famous Unitarian, that is to say non-Trinitarian Protestant in England named John Biddle. He ended up getting thrown in jail for publishing a non-Trinitarian book, and eventually he died of the disease that he caught while in one of his stints in jail. And one of the books he published was called The Confession of Faith, Touching the Holy Trinity According to Scripture. Okay, so here we are in the 1600s and the 1700s. They're using the word Trinity, but they don't mean the triune God. They mean God, God's Son, and God's Spirit. And so you got Unitarians using this word. Now, why did they do that? Were they, were they trying to fool people? Were they trying to pull a fast one? Were they trying to hide their beliefs? No, they were doing that because that's what some of the early Christian writers did. So in particular, Samuel Clark was a big student of early Christian writings from the first 300 years. And one of his favorite authors was this great scholar named Origen, or some people say Origen. It doesn't matter how you say it. Origen was this amazing scholar. He did all kinds of things, wrote hundreds of books. And uh, he was a big influence on Catholic Christianity. He died in around, around the year 254 after being tortured for his faith. He died a couple years after that of the injuries. This is from a book written by another martyr named Pamphilus, who was, again, I think beheaded by the Romans for refusing to worship the Roman gods. He was killed in the year 310. Right before he was killed, when he was in prison, he wrote a book defending Origen, who was a couple generations earlier. And this is what Pamphilus says. He's defending Origen against Origen's critics after Origen's death. And Pamphilus says, Let us move on to Origen's particular understanding of the Holy and Blessed Trinity. That is concerning the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Later he says, This is Origen's faith concerning the highest realities, concerning the Holy Trinity. The highest realities. Okay, so for Origen, and you know this if you read other bits of Origen's writings like I have, the Father, Son, and Spirit are the three greatest beings. God is the greatest being there is. This Logos is the second greatest, and the Spirit is the third greatest. Okay, so they're using the word just as a plural referring expression. But what is the mainstream understanding of the Trinity? Well, I can tell you the language. The language is that the Trinity is supposed to be three hypostases. That's a Greek term, usually translated as persons, with or in one usia, translated as essence, substance, or being. That doesn't clarify a thing. All I'm going to do is refer you <laughs> to my book because I've got about three chapters on this. What, does, what is this supposed to mean? These terms are philosophical terms, and you need a philosopher to like explain what it is they could possibly mean in this context. There is a standard language about the triune God, but there isn't a standard view. There isn't a standard theory. You have different people meaning different things. In brief, some of them think the three persons really are persons, like they're three beings. And some of them think it's really just kind of like three personalities or three ways that God lives. This is a big subject, and I don't want to get mired in it right now. So if you want to dig deeper, you can look at what I say there. 
Let's go on to this guy, Jesus. But we're talking about terminology, so the terms Jesus, Messiah, Son of God. In the New Testament, like it's just obvious to any diligent reader that these are co-referring terms. It's all just one guy. Now, there were these ancient people called the Gnostics, and some of them distinguished between the man Jesus and the Christ, and they thought those were two different beings. Well, that's just a failure of reading comprehension. Because look at how they're using the terms. Uh, these are written so that you can come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the thesis of the fourth gospel right there. That's the punchline. That's it. If you get that, you're getting John's message. And it's using Jesus, Messiah, that is Christ, and Son of God to refer to the same guy who's been the star of this book, with all this amazing action. Mark starts off his book. This is probably the earliest gospel that we have. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, comma, the Son of God. That's one character, not two, right? You don't have Jesus, the Messiah, being one character and the Son being another. The high point of the Gospel of Matthew is where Peter confesses, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Okay, this is obvious, right? We need some more help here from superheroes, so let me call upon this guy. Now, if you follow Superman lore, you'll realize that there are many names for this one guy. They call him Superman. His original alien name from his home planet is supposed to be Kal-El. They call him the Man of Steel, etc. Now, if someone said, well, I like that Superman guy, but I don't really like that Man of Steel, they maybe didn't pay very close attention when they were reading the comic, right? Because thinking that Superman is one character and the Man of Steel is another, it's just a mistake. These are all supposed to be one character, aren't they? It's just as obvious a mistake when reading the New Testament to think that Jesus is one and the Christ is another. Okay, bad news though. The terminology becomes ambiguous. This happens in the 100s, second half of the 100s AD, people called Logos theologians. They start to distinguish between Jesus and the word of John 1. We talked a little bit about this before. This passage, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And they're thinking, okay, the Word was God, that means the Word is divine, and is with God. So this is like another person within God, right? So I'm going to call that the Logos, or the Logos. It's what's translated as the Word in John 1. Myself, I think it's supposed to be God's wisdom and plan, and this is going to come to be expressed in the man Jesus But anyway, I'm telling you about how things have developed historically. The thing is, there are going to be some things that are true of one. If you believe in this eternal divine logos that was eternally generated, never created, never came into existence, they think he's unchangeable and perfect in every way because he's divine, so he's omniscient and omnipotent. Okay, well, this divine logos can't die. It's not true, strictly speaking, that this ever grew in stature and in wisdom because it's all-knowing, it's divine. The Logos never was born to Mary. Now the man, Jesus, he was born to Mary. He grew up and got wiser as he grew and bigger. And he was executed in a terrible way on a cross. Okay, so yeah, you got to distinguish these two things, right? Because different things are true of them. If you believe in both of these things, they have to be different things. They start to distinguish the man or the human nature of Christ from the Logos or the divine nature of Christ. Sometimes they will attribute the suffering to the man, but the divine power to 
the divine logos. Okay, well, this is a little strange. I mean, it looks like we got two Jesuses here and not one. But things keep developing. You look in the three and four hundreds, you see people talking about Christ and the God-man. The uh, human nature by itself, just that thing that hung on a cross, that's not a God-man, that's a man. Or this eternal divine logos that's with God in the beginning, that's not a God-man, that's just a divine person. But then they also talk about there's this God-man which has the two natures. So they talk about the composite Christ or all of Christ. So now it looks like we have three things. There's the man or the human nature. There's the logos or the divine nature. And then there's the whole Christ that they sometimes will call the God-man. Oh, man, that's, that's three Jesuses. This looks like it's starting to get out of control. Jesuses are starting to proliferate. It sometimes goes even beyond this. Have you ever heard in the present day someone, someone say something like this? I believe in Jesus. They mean by that the Christian God, not in Allah, the Islamic God. Okay, so now they're using Jesus for the Trinity, the triune God. So you've got three persons, and one of those persons is the eternal Logos. He's mysteriously united with the human nature. Somehow this makes a complete Christ. Okay, so there's four times the Jesuses you would have expected. Again, the, tr- the green one is the Trinity. The red one is the eternal divine Logos, according to this Logos theory, John 1. The blue one is the human nature, that which makes the Son of God human somehow. And the fourth one is the God-man, which has got two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. Wow. Okay, so what are we supposed to do with this? Well, there's another problematic term here, which is natures. And some theologians think that a nature is a being. So they ascribe the crucifixion and the death to the human nature. So they seem to mean a man by that. And then they say the miracles and the divine teaching came from the divine nature. Again, there's two different beings that are kind of joined at the hip. That's how some of them think about it. Other theologians, they think, no, nature is just like the defining attributes of a thing. So you have human nature. That's what makes you human. So Christ has, after the incarnation occurs, after the Logos takes on a human nature, he just has all the divine qualities like being all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal, and so on. Then he has all the human qualities such as being created, being limited in power, limited knowledge, and so on. Now, it's not clear one thing could have both of those natures because how are you supposed to be all-knowing and not all-knowing? How are you supposed to be all-powerful and not all-powerful? But anyway... When your Jesuses start to proliferate, you must eliminate. And so they've got to get the number down. One way they get the number down is they say, well, really, there's just the purple one. There's one Jesus, and those other two really are just attributes. Okay, so we've gotten rid of two persons. Okay, now we're down to one. Um, But it's not clear it's a human. That's one thing they do. Another thing they'll do is they'll say, they'll get rid of the purple guy, and they'll say... Let's just say that the person is the eternal person, the logos, the red one. And then the human nature, well, that's just a body. And so the eternal logos comes to take on a body. So again, they're reducing the number of persons. They're trying to get us from three or four down to one. There isn't really agreement about how this is done. And most people, most Christians don't even know about this history. 
it's a confusing subject and I told you I was bringing you bad news. So I'm not going to resolve it for you exactly. I'll point the way, I think, toward the resolution in a minute. Okay, but we're going to go back to biblical terms. And again, this goes back to the 100s. This guy named Justin Martyr, another martyr, had his head chopped off by the Romans because he wouldn't worship the Roman gods, which is a very admirable act of faith on his part. Justin believed in this divine logos, and he wanted to find Jesus not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. So even though Hebrews 1 says that God formerly spoke to us through prophets, and now in these latter days he speaks to us through his Son, there started to arise a tradition of trying to find the Son in the Old Testament somewhere. And one place that some of them try to find it is in Genesis 19, So this is the famous episode with Sodom and Gomorrah. What happens, uh, God and two angels come to talk to Abraham in chapter 18, and then the two angels get sent down to investigate Gomorrah. And then when they determine that, yeah, we're going to destroy Gomorrah, it says, Then Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. And... People like Justin Martyr wanted to read it as that one Yahweh, one on earth, like the pre-human Jesus. And then there is another Yahweh in heaven. Um, And so really there's two Yahwehs here. I mean, look, you don't have to take it that way. It looks like it's just they said Yahweh one too many times, and that's a little odd. But uh, sometimes you have sentences like that in various languages. I'll tell you why they were wanting to speculate this in in a minute, but uh, another passage where they think they see more than one Yahweh is Exodus 3. So it says, The angel of Yahweh appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of a bush. When Yahweh saw that Moses had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush and said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So it looks like there are two beings here. There's this angel, a messenger. And it looks like God's speaking through the messenger. Okay, but then it, switched, it just starts talking about God. And so some people in the 100s and the 200s, and even some Old Testament scholars today, they want to read it like this. That there's the angel of Yahweh, and then everything else is really this other Yahweh, this other God. So I think there are two here who are being called God and two here who are being called Yahweh. This is the reading I'm talking about, and then this is what I think is the more natural way of taking it. Do all Trinitarians think this? No, they don't. Uh, Here's a very well-known Trinitarian scholar named Ben Witherington, who's a professor up in uh, Asbury Seminary in Kentucky. And someone asked him the question. He has a Q&A at the end of one of his books. And the, the questioner says, This angel of Yahweh is later clearly identified as Yahweh. How can Yahweh be of Yahweh unless the scriptures here teach one God in more than one person? So they're trying to get this idea of a multipersonal God into the Old Testament. This is Dr. Witherington's reply. He says, Yeah, the Trinity is not really mentioned in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord is just that, an angel. The angel of the Lord is a special representative or messenger of God to God's people. And according to the ancient concept of agency, he could be considered to be the Lord who sent them and was to be treated as if he were the one who sent him. 
So basically the messenger is treated like the one that sent the messenger. And the messenger speaks first person for the sender. They can do that in first person. So no, not everybody tries to read the pre-human Jesus into the Old Testament, although some have been doing that for a long time. Part of what's going on is they're taking in a really absolute sense this famous statement in John 1 that no one has ever seen God, that means the Father, and then it says, it's God the only Son, or other Greek manuscripts say, or the only Son who is close to the Father's heart who has made him known. So they take this in an absolute sense. They say, it says no one's ever seen God. So anyone who was seen must have been someone other than God, that is, someone other than the Father. So there must be some other one called God, some other one called Yahweh in the Old Testament. I mean, look, it, it can't be right to take this in an absolute sense, though. I think John probably means something else by seeing God here, because on the face of it, people do see God in some sense in the Old Testament. So famous passage in Isaiah 6, Isaiah is describing this prophetic vision. He says, I saw Adonai sitting on a throne high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. That's the one God. It's not ambiguous in the original. Or another place, 1 Kings 22, another prophet talking, a guy named Micaiah. Micaiah said, I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne with all the host of heaven, standing beside him to the right and to the left of him. So, I mean, it looks like God has been seen. And so what does John mean? I think he means by seeing, like understanding or having a decent comprehension of something like this. So he's saying that Jesus is the unique best explainer or the unique best teacher about God. It's not that no one has literally ever seen him. I don't think he means that. So just to summarize, I know I just hit you with a lot of information. Sorry about that. I know that I raised a lot of problems that I'm not going to solve. Sorry about that, but I said it was bad news going in. So... There are some general trends. One trend is that you have biblical terms that become more ambiguous as time goes on and as views develop. So we've seen this with the term God. We've seen this with the term true God. We've seen it with the term God the Father. So in some cases, it's just going from one meaning to two meanings. But then sometimes it's worse, like the case of the term Jesus. Same with the Son of God, same with the Christ or the Messiah. People mean up to four things by those, and it's tricky to sort that out if you're going to believe in both a divine and in a human nature. And as we just saw, sometimes but not always, um, small c Catholic theologies will say that Yahweh, that term, is ambiguous. Sometimes it refers to the Father, sometimes it refers to the Son in the Old Testament. Another trend we find is that new terms that are introduced are either ambiguous or hard to understand. So the new terms we've seen, Trinity, God the Son, God the Spirit, although that one maybe is not ambiguous, uh, the human nature, the divine nature, the God-man, usia, hypostasis, These are all difficult to understand terms, and I'm not saying they can't be understood, but I'm just saying a lot of people don't even try. And um, at some point, 
with some of these uh, confusions, you have to ask if these developments are necessary. There's two or three ways to respond to this. And uh, I already mentioned one way. I said when your Jesuses start to proliferate, you should probably eliminate. Here's another thing you can do. You can try to correlate. So what you do is you get yourself some colored markers or highlighters. And when the Bible says God, if you think it means the Trinity, put it in green. If you think it means the Father, put it in red. If you think it means the Son, put it in blue. If you think it means the Spirit, put it in brown. And just try to translate biblical language into this later Catholic language and see if it works. And see if you can decide what means what. When the Bible talks about the Son of God, the Messiah, when it talks about Jesus, paint it red when you think it's supposed to be the eternal divine Logos. Paint it blue when you think it's supposed to be the human nature or the man. Paint it purple when you think it's supposed to be the composite Christ, the God-man with two natures. See how that goes, right? Truth has to be consistent with truth. If these later theologies are true, they have to be consistent with what's presented in Scripture. Right? Truth isn't going to be inconsistent with truth. And when you pick up your Old Testament and it says Yahweh or the Lord with caps, like we talked about, right? make it red if it's the sender, if it's supposed to be the Father. Make it blue if it's supposed to be the other Lord. That's one thing you can try to do. Another strategy, and personally I think this one works better, is you can eliminate. You can believe in the explicit teaching of the New Testament that Jesus is a man a unique man, a virgin-born man, the Son of God. You don't have to believe in this eternal divine logos. It hangs by a, an exegetical thread, really. It depends on just a couple of passages, mainly that one, John 1. And you don't have to believe in the composite Christ, which has two natures. Okay, so you get it back to one, one Jesus. One Jesus is enough, right? Everybody wants one Jesus, Why not make the one Jesus be the one that's explicitly asserted in Scripture? The man, Jesus, the mediator between God and man. You could believe in a triad, in a sense, if that's just God, God's Son, and God's Spirit, whatever those are. But the Trinity, again, it's not mentioned explicitly. You could just eliminate that from your theology. Believe in God, also known as the Father. Believe in the Son of God and the Spirit of God. You could believe that Jesus was a human, that God worked through him, God gave his spirit to him. Right? This is all explicit in the New Testament. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, Luke chapter 4. You can stick with the explicit New Testament teachings, and you don't have to go down the road of the two natures theory. Okay, so you can correlate. Good luck. Go ahead and try it if you think that both are true. You can eliminate which is what I recommend. You could reduce the number of beans in your theology. The third thing, which I don't recommend, which is what a lot of scholars do, is to obfuscate. This is where you kick up a big cloud of dust and try to make a quick getaway. Right? Well, terminology changes. All the ideas of the Trinity and the two natures, they're all in the New Testament, but they just don't have the words to express them. Great. If all the ideas are there, tell us where. Get out the old color pencils, highlighters, and show us when it's talking about the composite Christ, when the divine nature, when the human nature, when the Trinity, and so on. Don't just do like a a squid. Squirt out a big cloud of black ink and run the other direction as fast as you can. So, yeah, there's a lot of obfuscation. You say, well, traditions change and develop. 
they had the ideas but not the words and so on. Okay, but look, again, if the New Testament teaching is true, it's going to have to be consistent with everything else that's true, including later traditions insofar as they're true. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Until next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.